News Network. A president responds to a critic. I don't want to hear any more of these lies about reckless spending. We're changing people's lives. Yeah. Gas at an all-time high, shortages in everything from construction supplies, hygiene products, to food? Well, as we all said more than a president ago, you can keep the change. And in a crisis, the first casualty is usually the truth. So strap in. You're with TNN, the Truth News Network. And Dan Newman. Gotta tell you, there's a bunch on the table here today that we'll be serving up to you at TNN Live, and you don't want to miss a second of it. How can we do that? How can I say that credibly that, you know, there's a lot of truth that we're going to present to you. It's your responsibility to hear what we have to say and then weigh in on its veracity for yourself. We don't try to sway you here. When you come here, you hear opinions, but you also hear, most of the time, opinions about specific facts that we've been able to verify, or even the opposite, specific falsehoods that we have been able to verify. And sadly, pretty much everything regarding our government in the United States, most of the things we discover that are really important, they are proving that the things our government tells us aren't true. Now, let me tell you what the scariest thing is for me. I get asked this a lot of time. I am an enemy of fear. I hate fear. I hate it because it's a tool that's used by the opposition to lock us down, to put us in a box that they have the only key to. You know exactly what I mean when I say that. I hate fear. I hate what people do with creating fear in others to weaponize something for some purpose that is always surreptitious. It's never for a good thing, even Halloween stuff. Seriously. But it's used every day. The media uses it, and under Joe Biden, oh my gosh, the media have a green light. They have a free pass. Anytime, anything you want to throw at conservatives to make them afraid, do it. You don't even have to call the White House and ask for permission. It's gotten to that. And you know what's wonderful? It's similar right now, the atmosphere in the air. It's similar to what I felt right before the 2016 general election. That was when Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton. But this far ahead, you know, just a few days ahead of that election, I remember saying to myself, Maybe, just maybe, there's a chance where goodness and righteousness will stand up and it will overcome the status quo and it will overcome the quest to ramp up and get more and more power by the government. And sure enough, 10 o'clock, 10.30, maybe 11 o'clock Central Time, November 2nd, 2016, I get a phone call. And it was, are you watching? Have you watched what's happened in the last 30 minutes? Oh, my goodness. And I flipped on the television because I turned it off. I just knew. I just knew Hillary Clinton was going to walk away with that election. Why? Because the media told us that. They prepped us to believe that for months. And the exact opposite happened. The rest is history, and you know it. 
I saw a ray of hope. I just really felt like maybe, just maybe, we're getting on the right road. We're getting on the way to get back to where righteousness, honesty, the rule of law, commitments of oaths are honored and we'll get on the right track where America will get back to growing in every aspect of our lives. Not just our economy, not just our military, but socially we would begin to grow together instead of this great divisiveness that has purposely been sown in our nation for a generation or two now. We just can't seem to shake it. And the reason we can't shake it is because there's a large segment of our society that view that as a tool to use against the populace to garner power and control. And so the big question for me, the big question for me between today and maybe next Thursday, because I I don't think we're going to have the final results Tuesday night of the midterms. I think just like in the previous election back in 2020, they made us wait. And of course, now we see, and if I say what I'm about to say, I'm already branded as an election conspiracist. It was odd to me. Nobody's ever given me a plausible explanation for why did the election offices in Atlanta, Georgia, and in Pennsylvania, and in Wisconsin, and in Nevada, and in Arizona, why did they close down about 10 o'clock Central Time election night? And Donald Trump, it was, it was evident. He was way ahead, way, way ahead. I mean, millions of votes way ahead. 10 o'clock that night, oh, we're going to shut down and finish the counting in the morning. And even before they officially said they were going to come back and go to work, the televisions go live, and we've got Joe Biden's going to be the next president of the United States. That happening, that timetable, those circumstances, no one has ever explained. So if I think there may be something up, that means I am uh, ineligible to cast a vote on the matter, to give my opinion, because I'm one of those election deniers. They label everybody. Everybody that they disagree with, they being the left, they label you. You're an election denier if you don't think that everything was square in the 2020 election. Well, guess what? Everything wasn't square. Oh, there's always going to be some cheating and some mistakes. It's human nature. That's the way we are. I've asked this question to anybody that says that and will listen to me to ask the question is, how many illegal votes cast in any election is okay with you? What's, what's your number? Is it a percentage? Give me a percentage point. Is it a real number, just a raw number? A thousand? Two thousand? A hundred thousand? A million? Ten million? How many is okay? Well, don't you dare say zero, because if you say zero, you'll get branded. They'll label you as an election denier. What's an election denier? It's anybody that denies anything that the left have to say about in the election. It doesn't matter if what you're talking about is the truth. The truth. Who decides the truth? You've got your truth. I've got my truth. And my truth will trump your truth. No pun intended. 
It's like a, it's, it's just like a daisy chain. I mean, one thing leads to this thing, leads to this thing. You never get an absolute. You never get to any real answers. You never get to the real truth. If you go down that rabbit hole, there's no way to ever get out. And they hope you don't. Don't forget today is Tuesday. Tuesday, we're going to Washington, D.C., and our buddy Steve Baker is there. He is in the courtroom of the trial of five of the Oath Keepers. You know, those election denier people. They were there. They were there on the ground that day, and they were horrible. We know, we know they were there. They had massive amounts of weaponry with them. They were going to slaughter Americans. They were going to kill Capitol Police. The Oath Keepers were there to stop the election results from being confirmed. And, of course, history reveals the truth. Not a single Oath Keeper did anything like they were supposed to be doing, the FBI tells us. We heard things on the Internet. They were making plans, and we wanted to make sure it was stopped. Well, what did you do to stop it, Mr. FBI? You didn't watch them. They were all branded. You knew who they were when they showed up. You were prepared. What did they do? They didn't do anything wrong. But still, they're the Oath Keepers. So we've got to start creating a conspiracy that we can brand them with and put them in jail. Put them in jail for what? Being faithful members and former members of the military, police departments. That's what's going on right now today. Five of the Oath Keepers or in court, and they're in the trial of their lives. Steve Baker is part of the defense team. In fact, he's going to tell you today when he gets here, the first big presentation that happened by the defense, Steve Baker wrote the script, literally, for the defense attorney. He's going to tell us all about that yesterday, day one of this. And he'll take us on through and, of course, give us, for those of you that haven't been here, he'll give us a little background so you can catch up and know exactly where we are. But let me just give you the highlights. These guys, Oath Keeper is what they, they are. They took their oaths to the military to protect and serve. And they got out of the military and they really believe now is the real time that oath should kick in where they should really protect and conserve and serve the people of America and save the country. And they're not out there standing on the corner with shotguns and those evil weapons of war, those AR-15s. That's not what they're doing. But they're out there to protect those that are involved in their oaths to the rule of law and leadership. They protect politicians, those politicians that are out there that are doing it for the right reasons not doing it to fill their pockets full or to get a bunch of power or military might through a uh, through some type of position that they get in the federal government. And they're being punished for it. They're patriots. How many times are we seeing that now? People that are red, white, and blue American patriots committed to the bone to protect the United States of America and its structure and all the tenets of the U.S. Constitution. Those people are the dinosaurs, and I happen to be one of them. I didn't serve in the military. I couldn't. 
but I believe in every other thing that I just told you. And I'm here for that, that very reason. And they can't find any dirt. They can't find any conspiratorial information or news. And it's driving the left crazy. This judge, Judge Mehta, in this court in Washington, D.C., has a reputation of being anti-conservative, being pro-power to the existing government. Steve is going to tell us what he's doing in that trial. But before we get there, Steve's going to join us, as he always does, Tuesday, top of the hour, the second hour, 10 o'clock. He's going to join us live, and he's going to lay it out, and he'll do it. I, you know, I know some of what went on and has been going on, but just the very little tidbits. He is literally immersed in the middle of it. And he sits in the media room with those people from the New York Times, the Washington Post, and they're just like him. They're just like Steve, but they think a different way. And he was telling me about it offline. He was telling me that they are watching and listening to the same things that he is watching and listening to in the courtroom. And their reports, which he knows them the next morning, he just opens up uh, his computer and goes to their websites and he reads their stories. And their stories are 180 degrees opposite of his. And they're looking at and digesting the exact same circumstances. It's all about, for big-time media, legacy media, mainstream media, it's all about feeding the monster, feeding the dragon, the dragon of political partisanship and the theories that are laid out there in a political party narrative basis that they have to feed into. If they try to do something else, they're fired. Because what the Washington Post reports, what the New York Times reports, what the Chicago Tribune reports, it all comes from one place and one place only, from the belly of the dragon, the dragon of political perspective and the legacy media on the key to the dragon lair. And they're the only ones that can let him out and the only ones that can put him back in, and they do those two things every day. The dragon, he has uh, jumped up the last few weeks, and he started opening Pandora's box, which the left are going crazy about. Pandora's box in this case. Well, there could be two cases. Elon Musk finishing his purchase of Twitter, And the Paul Pelosi saga, chapter whatever you want to call it, chapter one, chapter two, we're at least two chapters into the Paul Pelosi saga. The first one could have been that wreck that he had, I guess a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, maybe longer than that. In this election season, you just lose track of time, at least I do. But anyway, in the recent past, Paul Pelosi wrecked his Porsche. And apparently he was drinking. I don't know if he was drunk, but the officers that observed what happened in the results checked him out afterwards. He refused a breathalyzer test on the site, but they could smell booze and talking to him. They felt like he was somewhat inebriated, all their subjective opinions. And of course, that incident and all the circumstances surrounding it were clamped down on immediately by the local cops in California. Why? 
it was Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker's husband. None of the details were released to the press. In fact, through Freedom of Information Act requests, all the mainstream media that wanted to get the details were only given just a smittering, and that was after Tucker Carlson at Fox News night after night went after them, went after those law enforcement people out there that refused to release the details of the arrest as it happened. Paul Pelosi was arrested. So now we have Paul Pelosi saga chapter two, and this one, he's at home. He's by himself. It's late at night, and all of a sudden, there's a crash, and the sound of twinkling glass hitting the ground, and someone enters the Pelosi mansion, and he brings a hammer, and he says at the top of his lungs, Where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? And he was there to kill Nancy Pelosi. Why was he there? These crazy, heart-burning, eyes-blazing MAGA conservatives, they drove him to come find Nancy Pelosi and kill Nancy. That's the only explanation from the left they've actually volunteered to give us. And yet... Things aren't quite like they have portrayed them. There are facts in that saga, the Paul Pelosi saga, that already exist. And we know that they're counter to the narrative of the left. I have got something for you to listen to right after this break. It's going to break down what happened in detail. And you're going to learn you're going to learn. You're going to get the facts of it. From Krakow to Grand Island, Milan to Hanoi, this is TNN, the Truth News Network. Hello? Hello, sir. I hear you having problems putting together your new kitchen unit. Oh, yeah. Uh, the instructions say that. What now? The instruction manual. It makes absolute... Stop reading that. Well, what would you suggest I use? I suggest you use the fact you're a man. Huh? Guys who got pride never relied on no guide, sucker. I'll give you some step-by-step instructions. <laughs> Buy Snickers, remove wrapper, bite chocolate, and get some nuts. Go to GetSomeNuts.tv for more Snickers man coaching. Long live the courageous. The tenacious. The ones who push forward and give back. Long live the greater good. The helping hand. Those who fall and get back up. And long live the truck with the strength to overcome. The will to outwork. And the commitment to outlast them all. Ram. Proven to last. Oh my goodness. I think this music is perfect. 
perfect for a setup talking about the Paul Pelosi saga. Yep, it's a saga. It's a story. And it's one that you don't want to share with your grandchildren because they can't take the fear, the fear and the anger that comes from the Pelosi saga, part two. I mean, it really is like that, folks. We're looking at a, um, a novel <laughs> in the writing. It's about the Pelosi family syndicate. You know, we have the Biden family syndicate. Well, we have Paul Pelosi. We have Nancy Pelosi. And guess who else joined it and is part of that? Paul Pelosi Jr. And there's a lot of stuff out there right now about sketchy business things that have happened at the hands of one Paul Pelosi Jr. Well, anytime you talk about a conspiracy theory and the conspirators, the ones that are writing the conspiracy theory, are on the right, those horrible, evil MAGA folks, especially when it's like that, all kinds of things pop up in the news and the defense of all those that fingers are pointed out on the left Oh, man, they come out from every corner. And you can hear and you are about to hear some of them. But in this particular saga, I listened to Tucker Carlson open his show last night. Very seldom do I get to sit down and listen to anything at night in the news. I'm busy getting the show ready for the next day. But I had a few minutes. And at the very top of the show, Tucker Carlson broke down exactly what we know factually based upon what the police have told us, told the public through the news media of what happened in the Pelosi situation. And there are some questions. There are some holes in what we were told, almost very similar, very eerily similar to the way that we were told the facts and facts I'm putting in parentheses or quotation marks, because the facts, as we're told by the cops, we know for a fact from the first incident where he wrecked the Porsche and what the cops told us wasn't the facts. And so what the cops told us in this case, we're finding out were not factual. Why is that? Why would they do that? I'm going to leave that question hanging out in the air. But what I want you to do is... You know that cup of coffee you got in front of you? I want you to concentrate on it and listen to Tucker Carlson as he breaks it down. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight we've been watching this story all weekend with growing bewilderment. Last Friday morning, as you know, around 2 a.m., police arrived at the home of the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. It's in the Pacific Heights neighborhood of San Francisco. Inside the home, they found Pelosi's 82-year-old husband, Paul, and another man, 40 years younger, called David DePappy. Nancy Pelosi was out of town at the time. In full view of the police, DePappi hit Paul Pelosi in the head two times with a hammer. Both Pelosi and DePappi were then taken immediately to a local hospital. Pelosi for his head injuries and DePappi for reasons that are still not clear. DePappi was later charged in federal court with assault and attempted kidnapping. At this point, that's what we can say for certain. David DePappi assaulted Paul Pelosi with a hammer. Apparently, DePappi has admitted that in police custody. But beyond those facts, there is much in this story that remains muddy. How, for example, did DePappi get inside the Pelosi's home? That's the first question. 
Last year, ABC News reported what you already guessed, which is that Pelosi has round-the-clock protection at her houses. Quote, she has her own security. She has the Capitol Police. They fly all the way out here from Washington, D.C. with her. And yet in this case, San Francisco DA Brooke Jenkins says that there was no security present at the Pelosi home on Friday night. And that's pretty strange because, according to multiple accounts, even when Pelosi isn't at home, her houses are well guarded. Again, as you would expect. Our friend Harmeet Dillon told us that when her firm recently tried to serve a lawsuit against Paul Pelosi at various properties he owns, all of them were guarded by, quote, multiple law enforcement officers on the perimeter. So how did DePappy get past security that apparently wasn't there? And why wasn't it there if, in fact, it wasn't? We know he got inside. And once he was inside, what exactly happened next? Well, accounts of that are changing. At the first press conference on Friday, San Francisco police suggested there was a third person in the home when police arrived. And Politico dutifully reported that, quote, officers arrived at the house, knocked on the front door, and were led inside by an unknown person. In other words, by a person who was not David DePappi or Paul Pelosi. Now, Politico never formally corrected this claim. Instead, just two days later, Politico, the same publication, attacked anyone who repeated its own reporting as a crazed conspiracy monger. Quote, Pro-Trump commentators weighed in online to raise questions about the investigation based on unfounded and false claims. Among those baseless claims, that a third person answered the door when police arrived at the Pelosi home. Okay, three separate adjectives knocking down that idea. But the question remains, was there a third person at the home? We don't know, but it's not crazy to assume there was. Here's how today's charging documents describe the scene inside the house. Quote, when the door was opened, Pelosi and DePappi were both holding a hammer with one hand, and DePappi had his other hand holding onto Pelosi's forearm. Pelosi greeted the officers. The officers asked them what was going on. DePappi responded, everything was good. So it's an awful scene in some ways, but here's the critical clause. When the door was opened, well, opened by whom? Common sense suggests it probably couldn't have been Pelosi or DePappi who opened it. They were locked in a life or death drama, a struggle over a hammer. The documents filed today assert that Paul Pelosi had never seen David DePappi before. Yet in Pelosi's 911 call, he knew DePappi's first name and apparently referred to him as a friend. Here's the audio. This is from a dispatcher relaying Paul Pelosi's call. Harvey stated that there's a male in the home and that he's going to wait for his wife. Harvey stated that he doesn't know who the male is, but he advised that his name is David and that he is a friend. So what does that mean exactly? Well, again, we don't know and we can't know. We do know that anyone who's ever met Paul Pelosi can tell you he is an awfully nice man. He's warm and he's friendly and he certainly didn't deserve to be hit in the head with a hammer. It's horrifying that he was. But as long as this is a news story with public policy implications, and unfortunately that's what it's become, it is fair to ask the obvious questions as you would about any other violent crime that occurs in America, and especially this one, since so many facts, basic facts, seem to be in dispute. Local KTVU investigative reporter Evan Cernofsky, for example, initially reported that DePappi was, quote, found in underwear when police arrived. Today, Cernofsky made a specific point of retracting that claim, quote, I'm now told by other sources that DePappi was not dressed only in his underwear. Well, okay, fair enough. We'd be satisfied with either explanation, not really our business. But you can't blame, and this is the point, you can't blame people watching all of this at home for thinking that maybe there's something weird going on here. Parts of the official account don't seem to make any sense. So the solution, obviously, is to release the police body cam footage from last Friday. 
That's often done immediately in cases like this, cases that attract heavy public scrutiny. Transparency restores the public's faith in the system. It is the only thing that does. In fact, that's the whole point of body cams, to reassure people that they can really know what happened. Transparency is the antidote to, quote, misinformation. On the other hand, if you want people to fall headfirst into crazed conspiracy theories, then you would keep lying and hiding things. And yet, for some reason, the San Francisco Police Department is refusing to release Friday's body cam video. We learned that today when we filed a records request. No chance, they said. So until we see that tape, there is a lot that we cannot know. But the main question tonight, the one that's going to affect your life going forward, because this story will affect your life, the question is, who exactly is David DePappi? Many in the media seem studiously uninterested. They don't really want to know. At a police press conference last week, a reporter was caught on a hot mic being instructed by someone not to discuss DePappi in any great detail. So it was left in the end to a journalist who doesn't work for a big media outlet, independent reporter Michael Schellenberger, to fill in some of the blanks. Schellenberger first did the obvious. He went to where DePappi was living, across the bay in Berkeley. You're seeing an image of it on your screen right now. Apparently, DePappi was camping full-time in a dilapidated Ken Kesey-style school bus, complete with a gay pride flag out front and a sign that reads, Berkeley stands against hate. Behind the bus hangs a BLM banner. So politically, this picture could not be clearer. You know where this guy stands. But Schellenberger and others kept digging. They found that DePappi was in fact well known in the area, in the entire Bay Area, as a hallucinogenic drug enthusiast and a semi-professional nudist. He often appeared at nudist-themed events. Does David DePappi have a prior criminal history? That's an obvious question and perhaps a relevant one. But we can't answer it because once again, authorities in San Francisco have refused to tell us or anyone else. We do know that the people around David DePappi believe that he was completely deranged. The ones who knew him best thought that. The San Francisco Chronicle interviewed his ex-girlfriend who reported that DePappi is mentally ill and struggles with drugs. For example, he once thought he was, quote, Jesus for a year. He's never been able to hold a job, said the former girlfriend. He has been homeless. This person really does suffer from mental illness, and that is probably why he was there at 2 a.m. She described him as a, quote, broken child in an adult body with serious mental problems. DePappi's neighbors, who would know, said more or less the same thing. Anything strange about him or anything that stood out? There's something strange about the whole household. <laughs> the entire household is very, very strange. How about him? Um, uh, he is birds of a feather with uh, akin to them. So they are just, you know, nudist drug abusers, and that's who gravitates toward them. So just another homeless, mentally ill drug addict with the fondness for BLM. That's not quite so unusual in San Francisco. Oh, and there's one other highly unsurprising thing about David DePappi. He's also an illegal alien. Today, Fox's Bill Malugin learned that DePappi, who was originally from Canada, has long overstayed his visa. So he is currently in this country illegally. So to restate the perpetrator in this violent crime against Paul Pelosi is a mentally ill, drug-addicted, illegal alien nudist who takes hallucinogens and lives in a hippie school bus in Berkeley with a BLM banner and a pride flag out front. So take those uncontested facts and let them rattle around your brain for a moment until a recognizable pattern emerges. What does this sound like to you? If you guessed this is obviously a textbook case of homegrown right-wing extremism, well then obviously you've been watching a lot of cable news today. Here's a selection. Is this political violence in your opinion? It seems to be clear uh, that the 
the content of his social media and the statements he allegedly made about where's Nancy, we're going to wait for Nancy, uh, certainly points in that direction. It seems like there's this effort to normalize um, this kind of behavior and to make Trumpers feel, you know, at home and prioritize um, their feelings. This is about election denialism. What has happened over the last two years has seeped into uh, the minds and the thoughts of some unstable people. Deranged right-wing fanatics, Trump media allies, and some of the most powerful people in the world were feverishly trying to stir up conspiracy theories that distracted from the central political headline of this story. That years of Republican propaganda and Trump-fueled fascism led 42-year-old David DePap to break into Nancy Pelosi's San Francisco home. <laughs> well, to be fair, the fact that Mika Brzezinski has a high-paying job does give rise to conspiracy theories. I mean, in a fair society, how could that happen? But it has. But the bottom line is, ladies and gentlemen, the mentally ill, homeless, illegal alien drug addict who lives in a painted school bus in Berkeley with the BLM flag is actually, despite all appearances, another member of Donald Trump's QAnon army. As CNN commentator David Axelrod put it, far-right conspiracy theories are to blame here. And of course, Jen Rubin at the Washington Post accused right-wing Republicans of inciting violence against the Pelosi family using this illegal alien homeless guy on drugs. The far right demonized Pelosi, and that led to the attack, read a banner on MSNBC. So on what grounds, other than political desperation, are they saying things like this? Well, according to some reports, the homeless, mentally ill, drug-addicted, illegal alien David DePappy somehow maintained websites with right-wing content on them. One of these sites was apparently called FriendlyFriends.com. And the strange thing about that website is that the web address for it was registered back in September, but there's content on the site that is backdated to August. And internet archiving services didn't register any content from that blog, apparently David DePappy's blog, until October 28th. That was the day of DePappy's attack on Paul Pelosi. On October 28th, FriendlyFriends.com suddenly included a bunch of incoherent posts about UFOs and Peter Navarro. We're not making that up. Those are the facts. What do they mean? Well, it's a right-wing conspiracy, obviously. Better indict Marjorie Taylor Greene for the crime. So keep in mind, as you shake your head in bewilderment at all of this, that the midterm elections are next Tuesday, and Democrats are in trouble, and they believe the attack on Paul Pelosi might help them. As Margaret Brennan explained over on CBS, because a mentally ill illegal alien attacked Nancy Pelosi's husband, it is now immoral to criticize the leader of Democrats a week before an election. Savor this. Republican candidates have spent more than $116 million on ads that mention Speaker Pelosi by name in this cycle. If this is about the issues, why don't you make it about the issue? We are eight days result. out. Don't you think this needs to change? Why not Again. pull some of these out? Why do you make it about the issues? Said the lady who spent four years screaming about Donald Trump, the man. It's hilarious and brazen and shameless. And the second the midterms are over, they'll stop. But the point is, as always, all the journalists, journalists got the same memo and they're all running with the same memo. Of course, using exactly the same words. Ashley Parker at the Washington Post wrote this, quote, in 2022, the GOP spent $40 million vilifying Pelosi in ads, and on Friday, her husband was attacked by a hammer. Do you see the direct correlation? If you criticize Nancy Pelosi, obviously you're endangering her family. Of course, she does run the political party that's facing re-election right now that controls the United States Congress. She's third in line from the presidency, but you can't criticize her because if you do, 
you're just like your acolyte, Paul DePappy. So the Republican Party clearly needs to stop running advertisements that hurt Democrats ahead of the midterms, please. That's the problem here, not the mentally ill BLM nudist in Berkeley. So what they're really arguing is, in the wake of this attack, which is awful against someone who did not deserve it, and we want to be clear about that. Paul Pelosi really is a nice guy, hard to believe, but he is. But in the wake of that, they're telling you, unfortunately, you can no longer have free speech. Well, you can't. They're telling you this is an example of stochastic terrorism, which is a completely meaningless phrase that emerged like a virus out of the university to infect our public discourse, or more precisely, to suppress our public discourse. Reuters has reported that, and we're quoting, terrorism and extremism experts believe it could be an example of the growing threat of so-called stochastic terrorism, in which sometimes unstable individuals are inspired to violence by hate speech. Okay. What is hate speech, by the way? All of a sudden, everyone in the media has, sort of without explaining why, agreed that there's this thing called hate speech that's real and probably actionable. They can find a billion dollar judgment against you if you commit hate speech. But just to remind everyone watching, there's no such thing as hate speech. Hate speech is speech people hate, usually the people in power. The truth is all speech, except speech that encourages people to imminent illegal action, like go shoot that guy. Short of that, there's no hate speech. All of it's allowed under the United States Constitution, which is our final hope. But what they're telling you is that dissenting in any way from the editorial positions of, say, the Washington Post or the Daily Beast or the Atlantic Magazine, disagreeing with those publications and the consensus they represent isn't simply immoral. No, it's worse than that. It's violence. It gets people killed. That's the stochastic terrorism. When you question, say, COVID protocols or drag queen story hour or the war against Russia, you are effectively smashing an 82-year-old man in the head with a hammer. They're making that argument. And of course, they have no choice but to make that argument. Democrats are very worried about the coming elections, but they're absolutely terrified that Elon Musk may allow people to criticize them on Twitter. And they know what Republicans don't seem to know, which is without censorship, the Democratic Party cannot continue to hold power. Democrats understand that. They have nothing to offer. They have to stop you from asking questions. So they have to crush Elon Musk, not because he's a right winger, but because he will allow their opponents to speak. And of course, they are using the attack on poor Paul Pelosi to do just that. The New York Times has just come out with a piece that says, and we're quoting, Elon Musk in a tweet shares a link from a site known to publish fake news. Really, what did Elon Musk do? Well, he linked to an article about how Paul Pelosi called the guy in his home a friend. Well, that's what the 911 tape says. You can draw your own conclusions or not, or maybe you don't care, which is also fine. How is that fake? It seems to be real. NBC News' Ben Collins explained that Musk's tweets are, quote, how you lose a democracy in the age of the Internet. Oh, by asking questions. Jimmy Kimmel attacked Musk personally. Used to be a comic. Sad to watch that decline. It's been interesting, Kimmel wrote to Musk, to watch you blossom from the electric car guy into a fully formed piece of human excrement. Then CNN told its viewers today that in the wake of the attack on Paul Pelosi, Elon Musk can no longer let people speak freely on Twitter. That was his plan, but no more. In the wake of the attack on Pelosi, Musk must retain, quote, what the far right calls censorship. Oh, the far right. But you don't need to be far right to identify it as censorship because censorship is exactly what it is. And to restate, Democrats could no longer exist or hold power without it. They need censorship. And they're going to try to use this horrifying crime to hold on to it. But something else is going on here, too. Something beneath even all of that. 
Obviously, by immediately politicizing the attacks, Democrats get a lot, potentially. But the main thing they do is effectively obscure the deepest truth of all, which is that what happened to Paul Pelosi is not so unusual anymore. Crime in this country is out of control by every measure. Attacks by the mentally ill homeless, even non-nudists who don't live in buses, but the mentally ill homeless are now their own category. They're a feature of life in our cities. In fact, of every part of this country controlled by the Democratic Party. If you live in one of those places, no matter who you vote for, you know that that's true. Get pushed in front of a subway train by one of them. That's entirely real. Here's one recent and especially awful example from California. A 54-year-old man and his 22-year-old daughter were just stabbed to death in the parking lot of a Coles in Palmdale by a mentally ill homeless man. Not an unusual story, but a particularly awful one. Here's a local news account. Residents say there are multiple homeless encampments in the area and that people are known to live out of their cars in the back of this particular parking lot. Everyone said they're shocked by the violence. For me, I was like dumbfounded this thing. Like, wait, somebody just got stabbed in broad daylight? I mean, like, again, it doesn't matter if it's daylight or nighttime, but the fact that people have the audacity, which means, hey, people don't care, you know, especially when you're dealing with the type of mentalities that these homeless people have, they don't care. So to find out, like, wait a minute, somewhere where I go and shop to get gas in my, my bank, is right here, but then some dead person is right there. That's infuriating and sad. So to restate, with heartfelt sincerity, we couldn't feel worse about what happened to Paul Pelosi. He didn't deserve it. On the other hand, if you're going to be injured in a violent crime in 2022, not so surprising that that crime was committed by a mentally ill homeless man, because so many crimes are committed by mentally ill homeless people. A fact that everyone who lives in a city understands perfectly well, and the people who are making it possible, the leaders of the Democratic Party, assiduously ignore. This summer, a nonprofit director in San Francisco, for example, a man called James Spignola, asked two homeless men to move away from the steps of a community center. In response, the homeless men violently beat him with a wooden plank and sent him to the hospital. This happened at 11 a.m. in broad daylight. This happens all the time. And here's the point. The psycho drug-addled zombies who do it are usually released the same day to do it again. Everyone knows that. It's not an accident. It's the result of policy, policies that Nancy Pelosi supports in her own city. But in this case, the guy did not walk because it happened at Nancy Pelosi's house. So the guy is still in jail. He's not benefiting from cashless bail. The police got there in two minutes in San Francisco. That's four times faster than the average, res average response time in San Francisco. Four times. So the lesson here couldn't be more obvious, and their screaming is designed to keep you from reaching this conclusion. But here it is. Nancy Pelosi and her party, the Democratic Party, it's not an overstatement to say this, have deliberately created a breakdown in law and order and safety and quality of life in your neighborhood, yet they are given special treatment themselves when it happens to them. So you can grieve the attack on Paul Pelosi and see it as horrifying, because it is, and still understand that the response to it would not be extended to you. It's a double standard. It's a two-tiered system of justice. That's completely unacceptable, and it's not justice, in fact. It's the opposite. So the media ought to be saying something about this. This is happening, this crime specifically happened, but so many others have happened because of policies designed to allow them to happen. And someone in the press should point that out. Hey, Paul Pelosi's not the only guy who got attacked by a nutcase homeless guy this month. But they're not saying that. And because they're not saying that, Democratic politicians get to skate. And not just skate, 
but to grandstand on Republican violence in ways that any person with a sense of shame would be totally incapable of doing because you'd hate yourself for doing it, but they don't hate themselves. They'll say whatever it takes. On the very same day that Barack Obama blamed Republicans for assaulting Paul Pelosi, Obama was campaigning in Wisconsin for Tony Evers. Does that name sound familiar? That's the governor who let homicidal mobs take over the city of Kenosha two years ago for political reasons. Watch this. We've got politicians who work to stir up division, to try to make us angry and afraid of one another for their own advantage. And all of it gets amped up, hyped up 24-7 by social media. Because a lot of times, those are, they're for-profit platforms and they find it more profitable to feed you controversy and conflict instead of facts and truth. And, and, and sometimes it, it can turn dangerous. Oh, your speech turns dangerous. Other people are stirring up resentment. Really, no president in American history ever caused, intentionally caused, more racial division, more race hate than Barack Obama did. Of course, it was the key to his second term, obviously. But the solution to something that he did is prohibiting you from saying what you think. Shutting down your constitutionally protected right, your God-given right to say what you think is true is always the solution because they conflate words with violence when it suits them. In Georgia last week, Barack Obama said Democrats, the party that defunded the police, the Democratic Party, somehow, he said, bears no responsibility for the rise in violent crime all over the country. In fact, Obama pretended Democrats had not voted to defund the police at all. Who actually voted against more resources for the police departments? Yes. It's like, if you'll say anything, maybe it works. Yeah. Whoever sees Baltimore and Gary, Indiana and Minneapolis and New York and Seattle and Portland, Oregon, how are those cities doing? Speaking of shamelessness, Kathy Hochul just went on Al Sharpton's show to claim that the crime wave, the one that you're watching, the one that may have hurt you or killed one of your neighbors, it's all fake. In a statement that is crazier than anything Alex Jones has ever thought, they have this conspiracy going all across America to try and convince people that in democratic states they're not as safe. Well, guess what? They're also not only election deniers, they're data deniers. The data shows that shootings and murders are down in our state by 15%, even in New York City, down 20% on Long Island, where Lee Zeldin comes from. So that's just a lie, actually. New York is so dangerous that people are leaving. Rents haven't gone down because foreign investors are buying up a lot of the buildings, but people are leaving New York in droves, of course. But according to Kathy Hochul, in a claim that is truly crazier than anything Alex Jones has ever even thought, in the shower to himself, Kathy Hochul is telling you that the data are fake. So here you have a city in which, New York City, subway ridership has dropped by 40% over the last two years. Now, according to Kathy Hochul, it's not because subway riders are being pushed in front of trains, people being attacked by mentally ill homeless. No, it's because apparently millions of New Yorkers are watching Fox News and they've been fooled by right-wing propaganda into thinking the subway is dangerous. That's what she's suggesting. This is too stupid. This is a lie. Voters know it's a lie. And when Democrats get crushed in next week's midterms, it'll be in part because people who live in cities and states run by liberals understand that what happened to Paul Pelosi could very well happen to them. 
and no one would care. Morning Joe had pretended it never happened. Never before in the history of this show have we played a diatribe like you just heard. That was 24 minutes of information, of facts, of questioning, of what we've seen and heard, and telling us, explaining to us, not in a conspiratorial fashion, but in a factual fashion, explaining to us exactly where we find ourselves living today. The divide between those that are honestly seeking facts and those that are seeking quote-unquote facts which they can grab and turn into weaponry to use against their political foes. That is a description of the two sides in this war, skirmish, battle, whatever you want to call it. But they're using information and twisting it into all kinds of things that look like exactly opposite of what the facts say. Now, we tell you that often here at Truth News Network. All of our lines, all of our promos, they tell you we're fact finders. We don't ask you to believe just benignly anything that we pitch out there. In fact, we stir you not to. What we want you to do is just what Tucker was talking about. Find the truth in everything. Find the truth. Don't just get mad if somebody throws something out there like you just heard examples of. Tucker brought those to the table today if you hadn't seen or heard them before. Don't just look at those, watch them, listen to them, and shake your head. Push back pushback. If you see a YouTube video in which somebody throws something out there that's a so-called expert and it's a lie, push back against YouTube. You can go on Google and find places to express your opinions. And what happens is more Americans, like-minded Americans, see what you respond with. What are they going to do? That emboldens them to do the same thing. This is what I'm about to tell you is an age-worn saying, but it is so appropriate here. If not me, then who? If not now, when? If we don't step up, if we don't do it ourselves, who the heck will? And if we don't do it now, will it ever really happen? Those are questions that we all need to answer. Don't forget, in just a matter of minutes, in fact, about nine minutes from now, Steve Baker will join us live from the courthouse, federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., where five of the Oath Keepers, what are they called, a a group? I think that's the safe thing to say. If you're on the other side of the political perspective, you may call them a cult but they're anything but that. But anyway, five of them are on trial. Steve Baker is hooked into the defense. In fact, he's waiting, his lawyer is waiting, because the FBI has informed, this is Steve Baker, have informed his attorney to be expecting an indictment of Steve at any time. 
Now, they made this phone call to tell his lawyer that more than 90 days ago, and he's still walking free. Don't ask me why, other than, to me, it sounds like Big Brother flexing their muscles, trying to keep you quiet. Well, Steve Baker's anything but quiet, and he's going to be here to give us the latest inside scoops on that Oath Keepers trial. He'll be here in about eight minutes, so if you need to get a, a soft drink, um, an adult beverage. <laughs> it's 9.52 Central Time. Somewhere on the planet, it's 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So just grab something. Be back here in just a couple of minutes because Steve Baker is up next. You get a whole lot of something with Farmer's Policy Perks. So much, I'm going to have to speed things up. <gasps> You can get the claim-free discount, which gives you money off your homeowner's policy if you've been claim-free for three consecutive years. Also applies for three successive years, three years straight, and what's known to insurance fans as the claim-free three-peat. Get a whole lot of something with Farmers Policy Perks. Start with a quote by calling 1-800-FARMERS. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Now for the legal something. Not available in every state. Only available with select farmers' branded policies subject to terms and conditions underwritten by Farmers Truck or Fire Insurance Exchanges or Affiliate. Have you heard about Blank Slate yet? It's the best board game. In fact, Blank Slate has quickly become the new favorite with Everybody around here. It's very simple. Unlike other games, no one gets embarrassed. Blank Slate is all about having fun, right? That's what we want. It's perfect for when you get the fam together or play with friends online because it's a game that everyone can get into. And if you need proof, just check out any of the hundreds of five-star reviews. It's basically selling out. So get Blank Slate now at Target, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy games. For over 75 years, people have saved money with... uh, with Sorry. Here we go from the top. And action. For over 75 years, people have saved money with Gecko. Cut it. What? What did I say? Gecko. I said Gecko. Oh. For over 75 years. (laughs) Keep it together. I'm good. I'm good. For over 70. (laughs) What are you doing there? Stop making me laugh. Gecko. Saving people money for over 75 years. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. Those in the know like to stay in the realm of innovation. Join them. It's easy to keep up with the latest trends and own the latest tech with BMW Select as it offers you the option to drive a brand new BMW every three years. You also get to tailor your deal to suit your pocket and your lifestyle. Visit select.bmw.co.za for more. BMW Select. Dynamic finance for ultimate control. BMW Financial Services is an authorized FSP and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. There's only one Dan Newman anymore well that just wouldn't be fair i don't know about that hey listen before we get in in, uh, the conversation we're going to have with steve baker some top of the line news just got a bulletin just seconds ago during this break supreme court just took some action and the left aren't going to like it because chief justice john roberts he you know that case where It's about Trump's tax returns. And, of course, the Democrats want that because they want to use it in the upcoming election in the run-up to it to kind of denigrate Donald Trump, who everybody thinks is going to come back and save the Republican Party. Anyway, Justice Roberts temporarily blocked the court from issuing or making Donald Trump's tax returns public before the midterm elections. I I don't have a television monitor in the studio, but if I did, I guarantee you there are some folks out there whose hair is on fire right now. 
Some good news coming out of Georgia for conservatives. Republican Herschel Walker has a one-point edge over the incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock in the battleground race for the U.S. Senate in Georgia. The poll was conducted by the University of Georgia in conjunction with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Georgia's largest newspaper. And they found Walker polling at 46%, Warnock way, way, way down there at 45%. It is, it is a horse race. Also in Georgia, Republican Georgia Governor Brian Kemp has maintained a solid lead over his challenger, Democrat Stacey Abrams. Latest poll puts him ahead by seven points. This same poll from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and the University of Georgia, they surveyed 1,022 likely Georgia voters during the 10-day period, October 16th to the 27th, and it showed that Kemp is leading Abrams 51% to 44%, and there's a libertarian candidate named Shane Hazel. Shane has just 2% support with another 2.5%, remaining still undecided. Now, these percentages are pretty important because if any candidate or a candidate doesn't get at least 50% of the vote, 50% plus one vote, they'll have a runoff election between the, the top two, which again would obviously be Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp. And so everybody is hoping that we get a 50% plus one vote in this election coming up, we're going to see. What else is happening? Well, Republican Senator Challenger up in Washington State, that longtime, very well thought of Democrat senator up there, Patty Murray. I think she's been up there since, oh, I don't know, Noah built the ark. Well, guess what's happening there? She is now tied with her Republican challenger, Nurse, Tiffany Smiley. That's interesting. This uh, poll showed that Murray and Smiley each had the support of 46% of the respondents. That's a two percentage point shift in favor of Smiley from the same poll conducted a month ago. Now, this is according to the same pollster, More Information Group. It also showed a 3% point decrease in Patty Murray's net favorability ratings, Smiley's net favorability increased by the same amount. I think it's interesting. What do you what do you think? You you see all these races across the nation, they're now getting really, really tight, or in a lot of cases, into the Democrat Party's fear, Republicans are taking over. They're leading in a lot of these races. Now, granted, Most of the races, their leads are very, very trim. There are very few blowouts that we're looking at. There are some, but not a whole lot of them. And it's going to be interesting to see next Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday in some of these cases. And I hate it. I think every vote can be counted because of the mechanisms that are in place and have been in place for years to do vote counting on election night and get results on election night. Can you tell I'm a little bit animated? I want results on the election when the election is over, not the next day or the next day after. Yeah, I'm on the phone. I'm calling. 
Hello, Dan Newman. Hello, Mr. Baker. I'm just calling you live on the air again, and I just want to ask you first, how are you doing, buddy? You're in the middle uh, of pretty, it. Yeah, I'm pretty amped up this morning, actually. Well, uh, we're the place where you can de-amp. And so <laughs> I know the stuff that you published and sent me last night, pretty heavy stuff. I know you've been through it, and there's a lot going on. Why don't you do this? First of all, take a deep breath. I know all you're, right, we'll do that. I know you're hacked. Um the judge did his thing, and I want you to get into that as you roll out this this story. But tell us where the Oath Keeper trial started before this week, and tell us where we are in relation to where we were last Monday when we visited. Yeah, well, uh, as you recall, last week when we uh, spoke, Stuart Rhodes had come down with a positive uh, COVID test, and that really threw everything into disruption because he was... Uh, as one of the defendants in this trial, he has the constitutional right to face his accusers. And because of his COVID diagnosis, the jail in which he is being held has a 10-day quarantine rule, and they are allowing no allowances for that whatsoever. In other words, he was not even able to participate and watch the trial on a video feed because in isolation, he can't, therefore, expose any of the prison staff moving him around inside the jail to a video um, facility. So as a result of that, trial was put into recess for a couple of days at the end of last week. Fortunately, they did take the advice of the CDC's recommendation of a five-day quarantine, and he was allowed back in the courtroom here yesterday. Otherwise, we would not have been back in session until Thursday. So the fireworks, are they got up and going yesterday. Yes, they did. So we were back on, full on. And uh, before I get into yesterday, I should probably tell you something very significant that happened today. They're really focusing on defendant uh, by the name of Thomas Caldwell today. And Thomas Caldwell is actually not an Oath Keeper. He's never been a member of the Oath Keepers, but he provided support and services to them um, for, on his farm. They could meet on his farm. They could they could use that as a uh, uh, area where they got together and staging area, essentially, before they moved into D.C. So wait a minute. Wait a minute. This yeah. guy wasn't and isn't an Oath Keeper. That, that's correct. And so he's on trial. He's on trial as part of the overall conspiracy. He's a 69-year-old, very disabled. Uh, he moves around much older than his age. And he is a 27-year uh, naval veteran. He's a commander in the Navy. Actually spent a couple of years uh, in the FBI as well. And he has that typical... Military, braggadocious, salty, uh, brazen language. And they're going through today message after message after message that he had with other Oath Keepers and other people that he's associated with on the day of January 6th. Now, he was here with his wife. He was on the Capitol property, but he did not enter the building. 
but he was receiving and sending messages back and forth between other O'Keefers back at home watching the scene from their televisions on their sofas. And this, all of this braggadocious language is incredibly prejudicial to the other four defendants in this trial. And so finally, Maida actually sent, the judge Maida, sent the jury out of the room. And then there became a big debate with the attorneys, the defense attorneys and the prosecutors, about which of these messages should be allowed, about their prejudicial nature. And then, of course, the fact that there had been previous motions to sever Caldwell from this as a separate conspirator with his own group of people outside of the Oath Keepers or with Oath Keepers who had actually already left the organization themselves prior to January 6th. And Rhodes' attorneys indicated today that there were going to be additional motions when the defense takes you know, their, their time in the trial to begin presenting their own evidence here, that they were going to make another, uh, it seemed to be, another motion to have him separated from this trial and then therefore all of that evidence that's been presented against him and has been, pre been presented in front of these other defendants in front of this jury prejudicial to their own clients to get him out of there and of course you can't put the genie back in the bottle what the jury has heard in this testimony where they were denigrating this guy that really was not an Oath Keeper, although he was their friend. I guess that That's that correct. is what implicates him in this thing. So everything that they have heard come out uh, from this guy is going to no longer be in evidence, but it's going to be in well, the, it's going to be in the minds of the jury. Absolutely, it's in the minds of the jury, and and when jury instruction time comes, and that's what some of this. Um, closed session outside of the jury's hearing took place just a few minutes ago. Um, as you said, the genie's out of the bottle. You, you can't, you can't get this out of their heads. You know, that's one of the quirks of the legal industry where a judge has the arbitrary right to let that kind of stuff happen or stop it. And obviously judge Meta has a political perspective that is getting more and more obvious in this trial and it's not conducive to somebody that is at least uh, connected with a group, a political group, whatever you want to call this group, but co uh, connected with the Oath Keepers. You're already guilty by association, and what they're letting happen now is, is just laying another layer on top of that. That's exactly right, and I have been very clear in my writings about Matt, I, even going back months ago, because I was sitting in on teleconference hearings and all the motions made by these attorneys uh, related to this case prior to uh, the, the trial actually beginning. And Dan, as I've said before, Judge Maida may be the smartest man in this town. And let's just give him that. Let's just say he's the smartest jurist in this town and that he is on a fast track to one day being appointed or nominated to the Supreme Court. But throughout all of these proceedings, he has been unable to hide either the political pressure that he's under 
from the powers that be above him in the Department of Justice and from the government itself, or he's letting out his own predispositions. And yesterday was one of those big days. Tell us what happened. Well, the, the famous now celebrity United States uh, Capitol Police officer, Harry Dunn, who had a very specific um, encounter with the Oath Keepers inside the Capitol building on January 6th, he took the stand yesterday. Well, wait a minute. Now, going, they, going into this, I thought Officer Dunn had some good experiences with the Oath Keepers. Well, that is what had been previously assumed. <laughs> That's what had been previously understood from video and photographic evidence. But it was also presented in his original FBI interview back in May of last year, 2021, that he said to the FBI agents who were interviewing him at that time, that he, in fact, had a positive interaction with them where he allowed them to stand between himself and a more violent or agitated group of protesters as he was protecting a staircase going downstairs into the basement of the Capitol building where other officers were receiving first aid from the, all of the battle line that had taken place on the west side. This was absolutely in the record, but it was a sealed record. All right. The only reason that we know about it is that the January 6th hearing itself accidentally or inadvertently released some of that information in some of their own documents. So therefore, we did have public uh, access to some of the statements made from that FBI interview. That particular document, as I said, is called a 302, but that document has been under seal since that testimony was given. Stop for a second. Okay. I want to interject something here. We're talking about Washington, D.C. We're talking about the entire political process that runs the government from California to Maine, all in. Correct. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, documents, uh, witness testimony, nothing is kept secret in Washington, D.C. And I promise you, whatever was in that that would be damning to the Oath Keepers or other conservatives that are caught up in this trial, it'll come out. Anything that is anti-conservative is going to come out throughout this trial, and they're going to use it to further their cause, and it has nothing to do with those five gentlemen that are on trial. That's correct. That's the nation we live in, and it's nauseating, but it's something we have to deal with. But there was a second interview, Dan. There was a second interview with the FBI, two different FBI agents who interviewed Officer Dunn in August of last year. Now, i got to set the stage here. By May of last year, the government did not have yet, or had not yet as of that time, identified who was going to be the scapegoat for planning, leading, and being the spearhead of this quote-unquote insurrection. By August, 
it was already becoming apparent that they had decided that the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys were going to bear the entire weight of the government's um, ire and that they would be charged with either insurrection or seditious conspiracy. And now Officer Dunn's testimony changed in August. Now, as you know, it's illegal to lie to the FBI in an interview. There's no such thing as an off the record or a casual meeting with them. So he completely contradicted and changed his story in the second document or interview. And in that particular instance, he said that a, there was now two separate interactions that he had had with either Oath Keepers or Oath Keeper lookalikes, and that the one specifically that he had with the Oath Keepers themselves was nothing but an antagonistic and a confrontational and a problem interaction. And that, of course, is the evidence that was been put into trial here by the prosecution. But under cross-examination, uh, attorney Brad Geyer, the attorney for Ken Harrelson, began the process of a very reasoned, deliberate, and actually, um, how do you say, he, he was trying to not implicate Dunn as a liar, but he tried to show that in the chaos of that day, the, the, the fog of war, as it were, that he may have conflated a couple of different events and therefore didn't really present the second testimony to the FBI in the manner that it was in the first. And Dunn has admittedly been under psychological therapy ever since the event. He admitted on the stand that he's still undergoing therapy today. He admitted on the stand that he was in a highly agitated state. He was running up and down stairs. He was tired. He was confused. He had been hit with tear gas and other chemical irritants. And despite, Dan, the fact that the videos that were played in court yesterday and the photographic evidence of a line of Oath Keepers standing between Officer Dunn with one of the actual um, Oath Keepers, Ken Harrelson, Brad Geyer's client, with his arms out holding the crowd away from Officer Dunn, Dunn sat there on the stand and said that that never happened. Oh my Despite goodness. the fact these videos are shown. Yeah. So when, so when, when Geyer started the process of taking the, the court and the jury through that first FBI testimony, Judge Maida knew exactly where he was going. And before he could even get to the second testimony, where he completely did a 180 and contradicts himself, Maida called an immediate sidebar. Everything goes silent. We get white noise in the press room. And when they come out, Geyer has to skip the entire line of questions. There you they go. Shut him down. Well, 
We're going to take a break here. When we come back, Steve is going to give us kind of the synopsis of the last week and throw in what happened yesterday. I got to be honest with you, Steve. It's not looking good right now. It's not looking good at all. Yeah, uh, it, it was not a good morning with the attorneys this morning. But I, I will give you a, I'll give you a couple of uh, beams of light when you get back. All right. Steve back in a minute. You're fed up with the nagging heartburn of today's lies. How do you spell relief? TNN, the Truth News Network. Des Moines HelpWanted.com salutes the employee of the month. The one employee you can't live without. The others, let's just call them Dave. Dave, we need to talk about your sick days. What seems to be the problem, Mr. Employee of the Month? Last week you were out all five days. I was sick. Thanks for checking in. You posted on social media that you were at a comedy club on Monday. Laughter is the best medicine. An outdoor barbecue on Tuesday. Feed a cold, starve a fever, or whichever one needs to be fed. That's the one I had. Okay, Wednesday you took a selfie, hashtag faking sick. That was supposed to say freaking sick. Thursday you were at an amusement Park. Somebody stole my phone. They stole your phone and uploaded photos of you at an amusement park. Yes, fake news. Friday, you tailgated in the employee parking lot. Friday's basically the weekend. Everyone knows that. If you don't mind hiring Dave's, go to the huge national job boards. That's probably what you'll get. But if you want more employees of the month, go where local job seekers find good local jobs. We don't discriminate against people named Dave. Dave is a common name, fun to say, and so we're using it as a catch-all for lackluster employees everywhere. Please don't write us to tell us you were insulted by this ad. That would be a real Dave move, Dave. Baker, live from Washington, D.C., is in the wings. Uh, He's a little bit agitated as he is uh, talking to us today. I don't think, I know Steve pretty well, and I just don't think he's real happy about what he has seen in the last hours going on in this trial. Steve, as you look at that, where do you see it? It's kind of like it took a 90-degree turn, maybe a 180, but at least a 90-degree turn. Where do you think the trial is headed now? Well, under cross-examination, many of the uh, both FBI witnesses presented by the government, as well as the uh, cooperating witnesses, um, some of these are actual oath keepers who have already taken plea deals, some fairly serious plea deal uh, to the seditious conspiracy uh, charge itself, and have now come in to testify against their former you know, comrades and the, and the oath keepers. And as a result of that, the uh, cross-examinations have actually gone well. Yesterday in particular, uh, a gentleman by the name of Graydon Young, who had only joined the Oath Keepers a month before January 6th and did, didn't go, go up there with them, he was charged with seditious conspiracy. He pled out to a lesser um, uh, series of, of felonies. Now, he took his plea deal a year ago, Dan, yeah. and it's still not been charged. Now, yeah. why do you think he's not been charged? Well, well, <laughs> because they're, they're waiting to see if he behaved himself on the stand yesterday. He, yeah, if he says the right thing. Isn't it interesting? And it, it just it frosts me every time something like this happens. The FBI, when they charge somebody with something, they're never going to, or very seldom are they ever going to drop charges. And when they get, when somebody puts a plea deal together, they're charged with you know first degree murder as an example. Yeah. A plea right. deal, they'll come in and offer them, you know, manslaughter. Right. Okay. They're gonna plead guilty to manslaughter. 
they're going to plead guilty to something if there's an FBI plea deal involved and the FBI is going to accept it. And that's what it's come down to in U.S. law enforcement. they got to be right every time. They've got to get their man every time. Forget about that thing of, you know, innocent until proven guilty. We're going to put so much pressure on you. We're going to threaten your kids. Oh, my gosh. We're, we're going to destroy your ability to make any income. But look, there's a little light at the end of a tunnel, and it's this tunnel, and it's your only way out, or your family's going to be destroyed. You're going to lose everything. And, oh, by the way, you're going to go to prison. But yeah, we'll let exactly you. It. We'll let you. You got it. You got to get away from it. But you got to stay right here because of one thing: you've got to do. You've got to plead guilty. That's so what this of, FBI yeah. is doing. That's the way they operate now. Well, as a matter of fact, in all federal cases, regardless of what the charge is, whether it's a financial fraud charge or a murder charge or a seditious conspiracy charge, the the mo of the Department of Justice is to so severely overcharge them that they scare 97% of their defendants into taking plea deals. And they don't have to go to court because it's a lot of work to go to court. And it's very and expensive. Gov- it's exactly right. And they're government employees, so yeah. why do they want to work? Yeah. So it's much easier to scare them into plea deals. So these guys are being charged with crimes that they're facing 20 to 30 years in prison and instead, they're making deals to try and get it down to five to seven years. Well, take us back to was, take us back to the trial yeah. and where we are now. Where we are right now, in this particular situation, and, I, and this is the one beam of light that I got from interviewing one of the attorneys this morning. I, I usually go into the cafeteria every morning about seven thirty, and I hang out there for about an hour for the opportunity to try and grab uh, and pull one of those attorneys off to the side and talk to them about their particular case, their particular defendant. I got one of Rhodes' attorneys this morning for quite a long conversation, and he was actually encouraged yesterday by the cross-exam of that Graydon Young, former Oath Keeper, who has taken the plea deal, because he got him to admit on the stand that not only was he involved with or ever heard of any planning whatsoever to take over the government, to... uh, interrupt the proceeding of business that day to stop the election confirmation, uh, to attack the Capitol, to go into the Capitol, to bring firearms of that. But he also was able to get that particular defendant to admit that even though none of this was, was explicitly talked about, that it was just something that he implicitly um, assumed was what everyone was going to do. And they actually took that as a positive because you can be guilty of conspiracy implicitly, but that's not been the government's case. They've been trying to exploit, uh, exploit a, an explicit, uh, set of, uh, evidences that this was actually a planned conspiracy. Well, they've got to, they've got to prove there's a conspiracy before they can send these guys to jail unless these guys plea out. Yeah, exactly. So, so there's one positive beam of light. I felt like that they can exploit when they get the trial because as of right now, with the schedule being back on track, it looks like that the prosecution, the government is going to rest on Wednesday afternoon and that the defense will begin their um, presentations on Thursday. 
Well, it looks like you're getting down to the meat of it. When uh, the defense starts presenting their side of all of this, uh, the jurists are going to see and hear the other side and try to find something in the middle. We hope they're impartial because, to be honest with you, the very fact that none of these guys, none of the Oath Keepers were found to have any kind of weapons, not only on their person, in their cars, or even back at the hotels where they were saying. And that's what we were told from the very beginning was going to be the state's justification to go after them because they came to hurt people and kill people. And nothing well, like that did. happened. They did have a stockpile of weapons at the hotel in Virginia for that what they call their QRF, their Quick Reaction Force. But they always do that everywhere that they go. And in all of the personal protection details that they do all over the country, that's just standard operating procedure of the Oath Keepers. But, but so they, that if they, in fact, they didn't bring them to the, to the site, though. They didn't have them no, in D.C. No, they did not. To, to, you know, uh, it's one thing to prepare for the what if happens, especially if you're in the protection business, which they are. They were there to protect yes. politicians and people they work for. So they had right. that just in case. But they, it was told that they were planning and they had heard they were coming armed to the Capitol to do their damage. Yes. And none of and that that happened. did not happen. None of it. Well, buddy, I want to thank you for being the emissary, for uh, sticking in there. And I know it's a lot of hard work. I know you love it, but it doesn't matter how much you love it. It's still hard work. And I know you are very emotional <laughs> that you get in the middle of the work <laughs> that you're doing, which makes it even tougher. Yeah, it's been a uh, tough couple of days, I will tell you that. Well, you're one of my heroes, and I want to thank you for doing it. And you stay in touch with us anytime something big happens and you want to get right on the air, give us a call. Will do. Thank you, Dan. Have a great one. All right, man. Our buddy in D.C. Boy, I like me some Steve Baker. I like sitting down with him and having coffee when he's in town. We're going to take a break. I want you to listen to this... um, Um, this is a song. I don't need to explain it. Just listen to the words. We've been waiting for you. We prepared a table for you. So glad you made it. So nice to see you. In case you didn't notice. You are welcome. Yes, you are. You are welcome.
Isn't that a pleasant song to listen to? Oh, my goodness. That's Forever Jones. It's a, it's a family. It's a group of people that uh, God led from Washington State to Shreveport, Louisiana. They showed up at our church, and uh, they just began to sow their seeds of wonderful things, writing great songs like you just heard. That particular song is on an album that was nominated for three Grammys, uh, a couple of stellar awards, Dove Awards. Um, on the album before that, they were nominated for Grammys and Dove Awards and Stellar Awards. And uh, uh, the song, uh, He Wants It All, from that first album, um, it won some awards, Song of the Year and things like that. One of the family members wrote it. I was the executive producer of both of those albums, and that's not a big deal. It is for me just to be part of that. I didn't get involved in the creative stuff. I mean, there's no way. I've written a little bit in my lifetime, but I could have never written a song like that. But after all of that chaos and stuff that we just listened to, the stuff that's going on in Washington, D.C., in that courtroom, that's just one thing. I thought it would be nice if we just relaxed for a minute and heard a godly song thinking about the good things. (laughs) Boy, we concentrate on the bad things a lot, don't we? Oh, my gosh. And why is that? Well, it's real simple. It's because the bad things are right there in our faces every day. And we don't have any option but to pay attention to them. If you run away from it, folks, it doesn't make it go away. It just it just kind of delays the fact that you're going to have to circle back the Jinsaki thing and go right back to the issue, right back to the problem. You got a problem with your spouse? You're not communicating well, or maybe you're communicating too much. You know what I'm talking about. Walking away does nothing. Suck it up. Turn around and walk back and say, look, let's work this out. Let's work this out. I don't want this to break us up. I don't want to have this hanging over our family all the time. Let's get it resolved. Let's get on our knees and pray together to get it resolved. Woo. What a novel idea today, huh? In the middle of all of this, we find out 71% of voters in the nation. They say now the economy is either fairly or very bad. That's up 49 points under Democrat rule. It's in another poll that came out yesterday. 45% said the economy is very bad. 26% said it's fairly bad. Total of 71%, only 2% said the economy is very good, and those two were smoking dope. I'm joking. They may have been, but I don't know that. Just 22% said it was fairly good. Overall, 24% said the economy was good. Now, this poll, this is a real poll. 780,125 people were polled between January 15th and October 30th. This tracking model captured shifts in the attitudes of different groups among us over time across all 50 states and the District of Columbia. These changes can happen either rapidly over time or not. Monday's polling, just eight days ahead of the midterms, shows voters' opinions of the economy have sunk under Democrat rule. The day Democrats assumed control of the White House, Congress, and the administrative state, that day, 72% said the economy was very or fairly good. 
Just 7% said the economy was very bad. 15% said it was fairly bad. Overall, 22% said the economy was bad in some way. Under Democrat rule, annual wages for American families are down $6,000. That's after you throw in inflation. That's an 1,800 increase in lost income from September. That's according to a Heritage Foundation poll. Inflation, the number one issue in every Senate swing state, is sure to impact the midterm elections. Jonathan Weissman and Neil Vigder of the New York Times urged the Democrat Party last week to switch tax on inflation. They exacerbated through massive spending, they being the Democrats in the White House. Democrat candidates facing what increasingly looks like a reckoning in two weeks are struggling to find a closing message on the economy that acknowledges the deep uncertainty troubling the electorate while making the case that they, not the Republicans, hold the solutions. Most economists do believe some Democrat bills, especially the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, exacerbated the problem. The $1,400 checks that most American households got in 2021, those have been forgotten. Their contribution to an overheated consumer economy has not. Democrats have also, let me just say this, those stimulus checks you got, I got one too, $1,400. Those things just made your prices across the nation go up higher And that $1,400 that you got in real today dollars is about half of that. It's about half of that. It's, I mean, everywhere we look, there's a bunch of bad stuff around. There's a bunch of bad stuff going on and there's nothing but finger pointing going on in our White House among those that were elected and then appointed by Joe Biden. And then there's the media, executives from Facebook and Twitter. That includes the fired head of trust and safety, Viaya Gotti, held regular meetings with the Department of Homeland Security. Now, why, why, why would Facebook and Twitter execs be meeting regularly with the Department of Homeland Security? Well, they met to talk about censorship on a whole bunch of different topics, including the withdrawal from Afghanistan, Coronavirus, racial justice. Now, this is all coming out from what? Some leaked documents. And it was leaked, the documents were, to The Intercept, as well as documents and minutes that were revealed through Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt's lawsuit filed against the Biden administration. In that suit, it alleges government collusion with big tech to suppress Americans' First Amendment rights. According to the material, DHS plans to target alleged misinformation around the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic and the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines, racial justice, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and the nature of U.S. support for Ukraine. Can you believe our government? We're paying for these people to do this. So what are they really saying? They are saying, DHS, here's what you need to do, and we'll help you. We'll help you find the bad information, the misinformation. We'll help you find it. Well, 
Let me ask you this then. What is what is the determined uh, determination ways you're going to use to decide what is misinformation and what is not? And Facebook and Twitter say, "Look, don't 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 worry about that. That's what we do. You do really good with what you do in the government, but we're in the media. We know how to manipulate the media. Oh my gosh, we've been doing it for you guys for years, and we know how to do it." And we know how to target misinformation. We know what misinformation is. If somebody out there and anybody out there that believes this is stupid, if they start spouting out there that there are 35 or 40 different genders out there and somebody begins to attack them, those attackers, oh, they're the bad folks. They're spreading misinformation. We've got to censor them so that the garbage they're spewing won't be seen by nearly as many people as probably would want to pay attention to it. That's exactly what this is all about. And so what they're doing, and it's proven now that they were doing it, it was suspected. We all talked about it. But what it does, it makes the divide between Republicans and Democrats, independents and Democrats. It makes that divide get worse and worse and worse. And then you have a president, the 46th president of the United States. When he was campaigning, I put this in in uh, looking at the what Donald Trump did in his campaign compared to what Joe Biden did in his campaign. Forget about how many times Trump was out and about among the people compared to Joe. There is no comparison. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what they said they were going to do and what they did. We on this show, we did bullet points. You can go back and look at the anniversary of Donald Trump's first year in office. He was inaugurated January of 2017. Go back. You can go back on the index at the top of truthnewsnet.org and scroll back to one year after that date and look at the stories. It was actually so big we had to do it in three parts, I think. It was at least two parts. But we prepared and listed and showed the achievements of Donald Trump as he had been in office. And you know what was interesting for me, and it shocked me as I would do this one time a year? He did everything he promised he was going to do in his campaign, except the things that he couldn't get Congress to back him on. I don't ever remember a president doing that. So... To be honest with you, Joe Biden, in most cases, he pretty much did what he said he was going to do. He killed the fossil fuel industry. Oh my gosh, that was the big one he said he was going to do. He was going to get us going to, at full speed ahead, the Green New Deal tenants. He's tried to do that, but he's been stopped. Everything else he promised he was going to do. I can't find any of it that he's done. The negative stuff that he promised he was going to do, that's what he's done. He's been exceptional at doing that. And, of course, we all know none of that was Joe Biden. It was somebody behind him, you know, the Wizard of Oz, the wizard standing behind the curtain, doing all the work and pulling all the punches, and it's all politically partisan-related, everything. And that, my friends, is the world in which we live, 
That's what we find us doing. You got a president now that's taking us down that road full speed ahead. And we, American people, we left a president that had stopped that train, had turned us 180 degrees around and had us going in the right direction, full speed ahead. We need people in Congress over these next two years, especially while Joe Biden or whoever's going to replace him is in the White House. We need some people that will stand up and say, no, no, political partisanship, thuggery, hackery, it's all gone. We're going to shoot straight. We're going to be out front. And that's the way we're going to run this government. If you guys want to be a part of that, come on in. But don't think for a second you're going to get any one of your things done. We are not going to negotiate with people that don't want to negotiate. We're not going to do that. If you want to be part of what we're doing, here's our plans. You want to be part of that? Let us know. Otherwise, sit down and shut up. Northern Tool and Equipment. My girlfriend has given me a pet name. I'm afraid to ask. Snuggle Muffin. No, it isn't. And she uses it in public. Okay, so give your girlfriend a pet name she'll hate, like uh, Thunder Chunky. I couldn't do that. I see. Too harsh for Snuggle Muffin. Okay. Drown her out with a 200-mile-per-hour cordless leaf blower. Got it. Here she comes. Hey, Snuggle Muffin. What are you doing, Snuggle out of here. Wait, come back, Thunder Chunky. There's no problem a little horsepower can't solve. Northern Tool and Equipment. What is Coca-Cola? Is it an excuse to get together? Since 1886, Coca-Cola has been passing on smiles from generation to generation. We've been giving kids scholarships. Like the early birds and the all-nighters. And you get to enjoy what matters most. Coca-Cola. Drink up. Out for some lays and you face a test. Which tasty chip will be the best? Sour cream and onion, smoky barbecue. Cheddar, sour cream, salt and vinegar too. You sample them all cause the crisp is so good on your lips. Yeah. You left your wallet at home. But now you have a new best friend. The many flavors of Lay's chips. One taste and you're in love. Conservative thought, not just talk. At TNN, the Truth News Network. And again, Dan Newman. While you were sleeping, the Democrat Party was out in full gear, rolling ahead. Three days away from an attack on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, in their San Francisco home, we still know nothing. Well, we know a little bit, but very little about the attacker's motivations or, for that matter, about what precipitated that attack itself. Now, that hadn't stopped Democrat politicians and their allies in the mainstream media from fingering the culprits, those evil Republican adversaries, and concluding that eight days out from elections in which they're bracing for a shellacking The Republican Party should spend the final week of the campaign sitting on the bench, reflecting, atoning, how convenient, how cravenly and transparently political. Pelosi herself, meanwhile, 
is fundraising on the back of the attack. Don't ever let an emergency go to waste, right? That's the mantra in politics. This is the message tacked to the bottom of an email blast from Pelosi's office that landed in everybody's inboxes on Saturday. It says, Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. As the top Democrat in the House, she's fighting to help working families and protect America from the dangerous agenda of Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy. We know you're getting a lot of emails, but it's only because what we're facing right now as a country is so important. Nancy is committed to doing whatever it takes to elect a record-breaking number of Democrats in the next election and beyond. Can we count on your support? So to hear the media tell it, Republicans are responsible for the attack on Paul Pelosi. And while Pelosi raises money in this final week, they've got to cry uncle. Chuck Todd noted with surprise on NBC's Meet the Press on Sunday that ads against Pelosi are still on the air. My goodness, they got hurt. Paul Pelosi got hurt. you got to stop running any ads that are telling the truth that sound bad. That's what we do. We take care of each other, right? No, it's not. Punchbowl News on Friday said there was something untoward about Republican National Committee Chairwoman Rona McDowell and Ohio Senate candidate J.D. Vance both urging voters to fire Pelosi, or as they put it, employing the fire Pelosi rhetoric. The media hive, folks, is real. And lo and behold, the geniuses at the Washington Post also trace the attacks to a fire Pelosi project, complete with a bus tour, a asterisk, what it, pound sign, fire Pelosi, whatever, a hashtag, and images of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi engulfed in Hades-style flames, devoted retaking the House and demoting Pelosi from her perch as Speaker. The audacity of that. Those evil Republicans. Inner former President Barack Obama, you heard him a little earlier in this show, warning that demonizing people stirring up division is dangerous. Forget about if you're stirring up division because they're not adopting the truth and they're adopting or trying to adopt stuff that is contrary to the U.S. Constitution and the freedom of speech. When Obama came to this realization, it's entirely clear. Certainly many years after sitting in the pews listening to his buddy Jeremiah Wright and cavorting with Louis Farrakhan, but not before arguing that Republicans are warmongers who have a lot in common with Iran's Revolutionary Guard. He said that. We know O'Biden's exhortation. It only swings one way. Democrats are, of course, still out there trying to figure out the motive for the attacks on the novelist Salman Rushdie, New York gubernatorial candidate Lee Zeldin, and Representative Steve Scalise, a friend of this show. You've heard him here. It's been just a few months since the New York Times got clear of defamation charges over the outrageous attempt to pin the shooting of Gabbard Giffords on Sarah Palin. How about the Atlanta spa shooting that was pinned on the anti-Asian rhetoric of the Republican Party? There's no anti 
Asian rhetoric of the Republican Party, but the truth doesn't matter. When you're throwing those rhetoric bricks, it doesn't matter about the truth. You just throw the bricks. Again, total nonsense was this Asian, anti-Asian thing. But the Democrats who write the news, they're in lockstep with the Democrats who make the news. And of course, the Democrats who stand to benefit from Republicans sitting out the last week of the campaign. Enough already. We await the conclusion of investigators in the Paul Pelosi case with an open mind and the knowledge that these things are often not what they first appear to be. In the meantime, Republicans should campaign hard until the polls close. And when they close, hopefully they'll start counting the votes. And hopefully they'll count the legally cast votes and nothing else. But there's no promise of that. At the end of listening to Steve Baker talk about what was going on in the trial and the back and forth, the misrepresentation of Oath Keepers and all that kind of stuff. He sent me a little, um, I don't even know what you call this, but it fits in well. Listen to this. A woman in a hot air balloon realizes she's lost. She lowers her altitude. She spots a man fishing from a boat below. So she shouts to him, excuse me, can you help me? I promised a friend I would meet him an hour ago, but I don't know where I am. The man consults his portable GPS and he replies, you're in a hot air balloon, approximately 30 feet above a ground elevation of 2,346 above sea level. You're at 31 degrees, 14.97 minutes north latitude and 100 degrees, 49.09 minutes west longitude. She rolls her eyes and says, you must be a Republican. I am, replies the guy in the boat. How'd you know? Well, answers the balloonist, everything you tell me is technically correct, but I have no idea what to do with your information, and I'm still lost. Frankly, you're not much help to me. The man smiles and responds, "Um, you got to be a Democrat. I am, replies the balloonist. How did you know? Well, says the man, you don't know where you are? or where you're going. You've risen to where you are due to a large quantity of hot air. You made a promise that you have no idea how to keep, and now you expect me to solve your problem. You're in exactly the same position you were in before we met, but somehow now it's my fault. Is that not an explicit example of the way Most Democrats, not every Democrat, but most Democrats look at you as a conservative. And what that man in the boat in the water had to say is absolutely true of most Democrats. I'm going to read it again. I know you didn't listen well. Here's what he said. Everything you tell me, and he's talking to the woman in the balloon, everything you tell me is technically correct. But I have no idea what to do with your information. I'm still lost. Frankly, you're not much help to me. That's what she said. And he smiled, the guy in the boat, smiled and responds, well, you got to be a Democrat. I am, replied the balloonist, but how did you know? Listen closely. 
here's what he said. You don't know where you are or where you're going. You've risen to where you are because of a large quantity of hot air. You made a promise that you have no idea how to keep, and now you expect me to solve your problem. You're exactly in the same position you were in before we met. But somehow now, (laughs) it's my fault. We live in that world. We live in that world. So let me ask you this. How does a Democrat in, in power, in Congress, how does that Democrat normally take care of very public, very damning personal things? Well, let me tell you how one does. Roughly two years after this guy, Democrat Stephen Horsford, admitted to a years-long affair with an intern, the Nevada congressman today is threatening to take legal action against his ex-wife if she talks about that ordeal publicly. Hmm. I was just minding my business until Stephen and his attorney demanded I sign a non-disclosure agreement that would ban me from speaking about my 22-year marriage, his 10-year affair, and our divorce, and I can't talk about it or they don't want me to ever talk about it. I'm banned from doing it forever. Sonia Douglas said of Horsford in a Sunday morning tweet, it includes $10,000 fines for each remark or social post, even to a therapist. So Douglas's accusation comes as Horsford navigates a difficult re-election bid against a Republican named Sam Peters. Douglas said Horsford is already blaming a prospective loss on her and refuses to take responsibility for his own actions. He had hundreds of chances to do the right thing, but he chose violence, she added. But I don't respond well to bullying or intimidation, so here we are. Hersford in May of 2020 acknowledged he had a years-long extramarital affair with Gabriella Linder. The pair met in 2009 when Linder was just 21 years old and an intern for then-U.S. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Horsford was 36 at the time. According to Linder, the affair initially lasted a year and a half before it resumed from 2017 to 2019 when Horsford joined Congress. The 2020 revelation rocked Horsford campaign, particularly given that the Democrats' political website described Horsford as a devoted family man. At the time, Linder said Horsford should step out of the public office for some time to do some atoning. But he refused to drop out of the race, went on to secure a second term in Congress. He defeated Republican Jim Marchant by five points. Horsford is now running for a third term, a decision that Douglas criticized back in March. This is the typical case of a family a man and a woman having problem, infidelity figures heavily into it, but still gets involved and still forgets who they are and commits commitments, forgets those commitments, and embarks on something that is pleasurable and a really good distraction in a time where there's a lot of heat on because he's running for re-election. That's just one of the things that happens that we shake our head when we see. Do you know the name Mandela Barnes? You've heard it. 
He's the Democrat up in Wisconsin that's running against really good Senator Ron Johnson. Well, it appears that Mandela Barnes, this this guy that's running up there, has been on Russian state TV several times, and he was interviewed alongside a very prominent U.S. white nationalist. He sat down for at least six interviews with RT, the Kremlin-funded network that was formerly known as Russia Today. He was on these television shows while he was serving as a state representative in 2015 and 2016. RT was forced to register in the U.S. back in 2017 as a foreign agent in the U.S. under Department of Justice guidelines. State Department said the network provides disinformation and propaganda support for the Kremlin's foreign policy objectives. His appearance could fuel perceptions that Barnes' views are out of touch with mainstream voters. In one 2016 interview about police violence and Black Lives Matter, the outlet, RT, spoke to Barnes alongside Richard Spencer, one of the best-known white nationalists in the United States at the time. Everybody knows who Richard Spencer is. Spencer advocated for a white ethnostate and peaceful ethnic cleansing was described in 2013 as the symbol of a new generation of intellectual white supremacists by the Anti-Defamation League. During that interview, Barnes described violent anti-police protest as a human reaction when you feel that your rights have been infringed upon, when you feel your safety could be in jeopardy for a simple traffic stop or any run-in with the law. This is how it boils over. Spencer, the white nationalist, argued that the BLM movement was a black identity movement that was using police violence, as you could say, an excuse or as a spark, as a way of expressing their bigger agenda. In another view in 2016, after five police officers were killed during an anti-police ambush in Dallas, Barnes criticized law enforcement officers for over exercising their badges. This just comes out overnight, and we're just a few days away from the election. Ron Johnson, who is up to his eyeball in intelligence information about a lot of things, but about a lot of things having to do with the January 6th stuff. That isn't coming out, by the way, by and for the January 6th committee different ending to the show today. But I want to say thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us every day. And we looking ahead, we got uh, three days left in the week. We got a big show with a lot of good plans between here and the Friday show. So make sure you tune in every, every day, every week, to every episode here at Truth News Network, TNN Live. So long, everybody. Have a great day.